Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always, that evil alder tree, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Beware my branches. <laughs> this week, we're very honored to have with us a renaissance man, Connor Habib, author of the novel Hawk Mountain, a host of the podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and otherwise activist and otherwise multi-hyphenate. <laughs> Hello, Connor. Great to have you on. Thanks. I'm excited. Yeah, it's really it's really exciting to have you on. I've been a oh, fan for a while. Thank you. Thank you. And I think you, ultimately, mm-hmm. what was the the final uh, the the final straw was when I had uh, Peter Biebergall on my show for the second time, and then you guys reached out. So that was great. Yeah, and Peter Biebergall is a friend of Hoy's, and he's been on the show before. And of course, his collection yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I know so uh, both you and Peter have uh, extensive interest in esoteric knowledge. So I think this book might seem to be uh, sort of upright in your wheelhouse. In yeah, ways, right? yeah, it was a good fit. Um, so I'm glad we're talking about it. And you All haven't right. said what it is, but I think that's good because there's some question about how to pronounce the title of this book. Um, because I yeah. saw people saying it was not pronounced like it sounds like it looks like it should be pronounced. How do you guys mm. manage it? All right. I'm just going to go with Fantasties by George MacDonald. That's what I I've been heard saying. someone call it Fantasies and say, like, it looks like it should be Fantasties, but it's actually Fantasies. And, uh, but I okay. don't, I, I mean, who knows? I, I, I'm not talking mm. to a lot of people that are George MacDonald scholars that would actually know. So I, I just don't know. <laughs> right. Well, I guess, uh, you know, if someone comes up to me and hits me down the head with a pipe, then I don't know what, 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 what factions we're in. <laughs> also, quick side note, when I first asked Connor to be on the show, I offered up Neuromancer, and he was like, no, that's not the book for me. <laughs> and having done the record, having read it now and recorded that, I'm just like, yes, this is a much better fit for Connor. There you go. But that sort of goes against our ethos of always getting the wrong fit, Jeff. So. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, Connor, what is your history with speculative fiction and gaming? Um, wow. I mean, there's so much to say. So when I did the book tour for Hawk Mountain, people asked me, like, what were some pivotal moments in literature for you? And one of the first books, I I started writing a novel when I was seven years old. And the reason why, and this just fits in perfectly with you guys, is I read a book by Gary Gygax called Artifact of Evil. And it's like, I think it's a, it's, it's either, I think it's a Greyhawk Mm -hmm. novel. And I remember just being a kid and being like, whoa, this novel starts in the middle of a battle scene. And when you're a kid and you're reading kids books, you're usually used to like, there once was a man who lived here and did this and whatever. But this, you know, I, I was reading kind of more advanced books at the time. Um, but I, and I read some of the Xanth novels by Piers Anthony and I was reading, you know, these big fantasy novels, but this one really just dropped you right in the middle. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to go write something. And so I started writing a fantasy novel when I was like seven or eight years cool. old called the wars of Thyrod, which is, uh, since been shelved. <laughs> um, and, uh, but that, but so, and one of the reasons why, um, you know, I mean, my whole, my whole childhood was like really richly populated with um, fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons, 
and directly and adjacent stuff. So like the cartoon, for instance, was huge part of my imagination. Um, my brother was playing, my brother's 13 years older than me and he was playing Dungeons and Dragons with his friends in high school. And these were like fairly, you know, I'm 40, I'll be 46 this year. So these are fairly early iterations of the game. And um, so then he had his monster manuals and the fiend folio and all these things laying around the house. And I just read them in an encyclopedic manner, but like I could not get mm-hmm. enough. I just like absorbed mostly like the monster manual type of stuff. I wasn't reading really the rules or whatever, but just to populate my mind with these, oh, yeah, you know, fantastic images, you know? And um, then he would play Dungeons and Dragons with my sister and I. And uh, so we begged him, you know, to play Dungeons and Dragons, which must've been a bit of a drag for him because he was 13 years older than us and wanted to, you know, play with his high school and college friends and stuff like that. Um so, you know, it's really early contact with that kind of stuff and not just early, but also like a profound and kind of sweeping influence on the formation of my imagination. And I have plenty more to say, um, but I don't know if you guys want to jump in there, if I should just no, keep I going. Mean, so does that tie in with your sort of interest in esoteric knowledge and, and the like? Is that, is that a, a direct connection, you think? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I mean, I think having, having the feeling, well, look, I mean, all reading like kids who read a lot, you know, definitely, I think have an aptitude for engaging with occultism, esoteric stuff, because it requires a a kind of, um, I don't want to say a drive, that's not right, but like a proclivity to um, self-understanding and um, and exploring just your own inner realm. Um, I mean, I know <laughs> this is going to sound very lonely, but I'm sure lots of people listening to the show can relate. You know, I couldn't get my brother to play those games with me. So I, like I said, I was reading the monster manuals and stuff and just memorizing everything in them. But then I also would get all the sort of fighting fantasy books, um, you know, and uh, the Steve Jackson game ones. And also there were Marvel comics ones and they had like the little character sheet in it. And I went through all of those. And I think the idea of, uh, you know, adopting a, an identity and having some of it be up to me, some of it be up to chance and some of it be predetermined and start sort of sorting out like who you are and like what the world is like a little bit for you. And I, and again, and then that would lead me to, you know, reading other manuals for other games. I remember tune. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember reading that, that, and then there was the DC Universe game and the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. role-playing game as well, but the DC Universe one. Um, and I, I started writing campaigns for it, but I didn't have anybody to play it with. But all I was really doing was writing right, stories. Yeah. Um, I just wanted someone to get involved in my story. And so how does that all relate to like occult and esoteric stuff? It was like, well, um, I was just I was just thinking about these like – universes how they worked and you know and kind of alone in it with this sense that if i got smarter if i got better i could understand them more i could write them better and all that is just to say that there was a self-development principle that lines up i think with the kind of spiritual 
work I do now and the things that I'm interested in now. So um, I know that that's not as fun as saying I have this like Rona Jaffe mazes and monsters, like totally (laughs) (laughs) sort of thing, but I definitely, um, but it had more to do with just sort of the kind of mode of engaging with games that were deeply rooted in the imaginative mm-hmm. world, you know. With that in mind, do you have any particular works that you would really recommend for people to sort of talk about visualization or world building? And, and... yeah, you know, it's funny because I I knew you guys were going to ask me this, and I was like, some of the books that I would recommend. I mean, I barely even remember them at this point. Like, there's the Fred Sabergan series, like the the uh, Book of mm-hmm, Swords, mm-hmm. and I remember the reason why I remember those is that my brother was using the 12 swords of power from that book series in his campaigns. And I didn't even read the books, but he was just telling me how about each of the swords. And I remember being like, Whoa, each sword has a different power and presence and everything. And Mm -hmm. that's so cool. And, um, so like there's that kind of thing. Right. And then there's the ones that actually did get, um, like the Fritz Lieber novels and stuff that actually did get kind of incorporated into some of the D and D world. But then um, I think more recent things, you know, one, one thing that I, and this dovetails nicely with the book we're going to read, there's a book called um, the King of Ireland's son by Padraig Colum. Um, and uh, you know, there's a repeated rhyme in there, his hound at his heel, his hawk on his wrist, a brave steed to carry him, whether he list the blue sky above him, the green glass below him is what, you know, introduces this hero who's always setting out on an adventure. I mean, and what could sound more like ready for a grand adventure right. than that? And so this is a book that kind of weaves together these Irish fairy tales. Patrick Colm was a writer, I think he died in the seventies, but he was a big Irish writer, friends with James Joyce and a bunch of other Irish modernists. And he was trying to revitalize the connection to the Irish imagination and Irish mythology in part to resist the colonialism of the British here. Um, but also just because he was really interested in that. And it's very, I mean, that book, you'll just not want to put it down. It's so exciting. And it goes through all these different myths in this really fun, heroic way. Um, and then maybe two other things I would just say the Hyperion Cantos, um, you know, one of the reasons why Hyperion, the first book by Dan Simmons is really great is it's told as backstory for each of the characters um, who are on a pilgrimage to see this mysterious being the Shrike. But each of those characters gets their own story on a different world. <laughs> and so there's, it's not just world building. It's like world building, building in character and they're wild. Yeah. I mean, and they're wildly right. different. So I think those are good and I'll just plug one Absolutely. more and then I'll let you go, which is Other Words for Smoke by Sarah Maria Griffin. Um, she's an Irish writer who I've had on my show and she does basically YA dark fantasy, although I think she has an adult dark fantasy novel coming out. But Other Words for Smoke is a way of, there, this girl moves to, a, well, these two people move to a house and there's um, just something weird going on in the house. And this weird being appears and starts talking to them and making demands. And it's all very creepy. The, the reason why I recommend that is just to um, give an example of how you would create something that is coherent, but doesn't have an explanation. Like she doesn't explain exactly what these beings are. Um, she doesn't 
um, necessarily go into detail about the how of everything. It's not all backed up by some sort of rich, tightly woven plot, but instead, um, it, but anyway, even though that it still feels completely coherent and completely tight. And so I just think that's a good example of how to bring some sort of weird character or presence into a a game. Talking about that experiential, there's two strains, I think, in Dungeons and Dragons or gaming in general. There's that one strain of wanting to catalog everything and having a a rational basis for everything. And then there's the other thing of that, like that, Mm. that cosmic knowledge, whether it's a Lovecraftian monster or something from beyond. And she right. seems to be someone who might be able to sort of bridge that gap um, based on what you're describing. So that's a, that's a very interesting, uh, and I'll definitely be looking for that book. Cool. Um, so we are about to discuss uh, Fantasties and go into the library. But before we do, uh, I have a, we'd like to bring up our Hygaxian word of the week. I think I'm going to go with Adam's. I think this is Adam's work, word here. So, Refulgent. Refulgent. Shining brightly. Considering how sort of... Um, seemingly ornate this book the actual uh vocabulary is not difficult there's only a few instances and, and usually sometimes it's like right, a specific yeah. word for you know for example i'm not very i'm a city kid so i don't know all the trees and stuff like so it's this tree or the stone or stuff but it's very rarely some sort of very weird archaic english word and that's pretty impressive considering that this book was written in 1858 so um so here we are with fantasties so let's talk about what editions of the book we're working with uh connor what are you working with uh, you know, it's just a print-on-demand edition, actually, that had a bunch of George MacDonald, Elsa's The Light Princess and The Princess and the Goblin and Lilith in it. I was trying to find a really great, like, I don't know, Penguin edition or something. But because I guess it's public domain right. now, anybody can print it. And so I just got this one because the cover was the coolest. As <laughs> good a awful. reason as any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about you, Jeff? I've got the 2005 Dover paperback. Um, that has the Arthur Hughes illustrations throughout, and oh, the cover right. mm. is one of those Arthur Hughes illustrations. Um, Connor, does your edition have the illustrations? No, what a bummer. Um, I wish it did. Sorry. Yeah, they're really beautiful. I, I want to see yeah. them. Now. Um, that sounds really Like, cool. here's the woman, the maiden walking with the globe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, just a lot of uh, And those were commissioned by, like I think, McDonald's son, right? That was like the sort of like... Here's the shadow emerging. Oh, nice. That's great. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, really. That's beautiful. creepy, actually. I'll probably have to go look. Yeah, sorry. Nobody can see that. <laughs> 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 they can use their imagination wow, or the powers of Google. It's really the coolest thing I've ever right, seen right. in my life. <laughs> I might have to go look for that edition, though. Uh, I was working for the ebook from open road media which has the worst uh, it's not even worth showing but it's like the worst most mundane it's literally a like dorm room writing desk and then a bunch of like sparkles behind it for the cover but <laughs> <laughs> but i also have the Valentine adult fantasy uh with the wraparound oh, cover cool. by gervasio gallardo so beautiful always beautiful wow um this edition is interesting because Lynn Carter, who edited the Valentine Adult Fantasy series, has a pretty concise introduction. Um, but he specifically said that he left out a lot of the versifying in there because he said that McDonald literally had no ear for verse and that it was just going to slow everything down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think he was probably right, even though I read the one that had all the verse, he was probably right to do that. So. <laughs> I'll say I also I, sometimes I like to listen to audiobooks along with the book while I'm reading it. I don't always do it, but I did it. I, I kind of ducked in and out with that while reading it this time. 
And first I was listening to a YouTube video where this woman was narrating it. But when it got to the verses, she actually sang them. And that really took me out of it. So I had to, <laughs> I, I had to stop those. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for her. I'm glad she's being creative. And, and, but it wasn't working for me. Um, so then I would go into the LibriVox recording, which was um, much um, more accessible for what I was looking for. That's uh, so. funny. I mean, mine has all mine has all the verses. Like it is, it is definitely like he has kind of a tinny ear for that. But I'm glad they're in there because singing is at, like singing and poetry of the characters is such an important evocative like aspect of what happens in so much as things happen in this book. So I think like um, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad they're in there. But it isn't. It's not that I mean the rest of the book is actually quite beautiful, and then the parts that are supposed to be these beautiful <laughs> you know, lyrical moments, right? You right. Know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've been talking about uh, this book. It's a little hard to describe, though, Jeff. So how would you describe this in terms of plot? Yeah, so we're, we've got a plot description here. What I, since ever since Neuromancer, we had Chat GPT do one, which felt really appropriate for Neuromancer. This time around, what I did is I went to Chat GPT and I plugged in the Wikipedia synopsis and asked it to give me one that was much shorter and written in a more casual tone. So this is what I've got. So there's this guy named Anados who inherits a desk from his dad and finds a fairy lady inside. She shows him fairyland and he wakes up uh, to find his room transforming into a magical place. He meets some folks who warn him about evil trees and meets fairies living in flowers. He has a scary encounter with the ash tree spirit, but finds comfort in the beech tree spirit. Anados finds, also finds a statue and pursues it, but it turns out to be the maid of the alder tree in disguise who leads him into danger. He escapes with the help of a knight named Sir Percival. Anados also finds a palace with lots of rooms and reads the story of Cosmos of Prague, who sacrifices his life for his lover's soul. He explores the palace and dreams of a marble lady who he later finds on an empty pedestal. He follows her into a strange underground world with gnomes, but escapes and ends up on an island with four doors leading to different worlds. He journeys through each door and becomes a hero after fighting giants with two brothers. Anados is then captured by his shadow and imprisoned, but escapes with the help of a woman he met in Fairyland. He becomes Sir Percival's squire and tries to stop an evil ritual, but is killed in the process. He becomes a spirit before waking up on Earth and finding out he was only gone for 21 days. <laughs> I like the so there's this guy. This is right. guy. So there's this guy <laughs> named Anados. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is about the most... Uh... I guess it's accurate. It's like it's so utterly mundane that description of this book that is so <laughs> otherworld otherworldly. So having said that, so yeah. what is your what is your take on this book or first first thought on this book, Connor? Yeah. I mean, my first thought on it is that it's so rich um that it, <laughs> it's it's very beautiful, but you feel um a slow passage through it um, because it's so filled with detail and to, you know, I mean, it's way more about the sort of detail and the exploration than any sort of plot points, even though the summary that was created by the um, algorithm meeting Jeff, meeting Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, makes it sound like there's, 
uh, a sort of progression of plot, mm-hmm. but it's much more kind of wandering. Yeah. And um, in that way, it, it really reminded me of this very short fairy tale. Well, actually, it's it's kind of long, but shorter than this, called The Green Snake and the Beautiful Lily by Goethe. And Goethe is quoted in this, which is part of this weird tradition called um, Kunstmarken, <laughs> which is basically an, art, an artsy kind of literary fairy tale. Um, and so if you just, if you want to think of it that way, like think of a fairy tale, um, you know, where it's like, it's kind of flat in a way, like there's not a ton of character development. It's not like we're learning about, you know, the inner lives of the characters, but weird things just keep happening to them. And the interest is in where they're at and what they see and what they encounter. And, um, if you want to think of someone doing a literary version of that, that's what this was. I I like that. Um, I was kind of thinking, I don't know if the other guys are going to like this one, but I really enjoyed it. And there's also um, a kind of, there's a store of some occult knowledge and stuff in here that makes me, especially with some of the people that um, McDonald quotes, um, makes me wonder if he's actually trying to convey some of that information, which would probably would have been illegal to try to convey um, in Scotland at the time. Um, and then just one more thing, which is, you know, I mean, I think he's uh, actually, no, you know what? I'm not going to do one more thing. I'll right. stop there. I think just you're on something there. Um, so Lynn Carter's introduction, he also mentioned that I'm, I'm not really well versed in, in sort of, uh, the, the major psychological theories of the early 20th century, but he's really you know, saying you know, that um, that McDonald sort of anticipates Jung in some ways. I mean, literally, there's a shadow, right? And, and, and Jung is the most sort of mystical of sort of the branches of of uh, psycho psychotherapy, at, you know, that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but there's some stuff that's really, really quite modern. Uh, there's a couple passages. Um, uh, the one about Jeff about the um, the one that you liken to cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, yeah, yeah. So in chapter eight, there is something that's very CBT. He says, "Afterwards, I learned that the best way to manage some kinds of painful thoughts is to dare them to do their worst." And a common thing in cognitive behavioral therapy is when you're having anxiety. You think about the thing you're anxious about, you imagine the worst case scenario, and then you ask yourself, okay, so let's imagine this worst case scenario does happen. Is it, is it as bad as my anxiety is building it up to be? So I think it's really interesting that George MacDonald has like this really kind of insightful look into the, the, the human experience that I really wasn't expecting to see in such a... Um, in such a, um, I, I'm, I'm losing the word I'm looking for, but I, I wasn't expecting it in this. Right, right. And, and to your mm-hmm. point, Connor, about like, was it, um, you know, il- if not literally illegal, certainly not well thought of, you know, what he went, I'd been talking to, he was a, McDonald was a congregationalist minister and then he was preaching in Ireland and then his congregation didn't like what he was saying. Cause I guess they were all, um, you know, Calvinists and he was preaching universal love. And, and so they said, Oh, well, we can't fire you, but we're going to cut your salary in half. And so he basically had to give that up as a profession yeah. and became a novelist. So I think you're onto something there as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to say too, like, I mean, when, so when this came out, it was 1858. Yeah. Is that, yeah it's 165 it? years old. Yeah. So, I mean, just to point out, you know, in Scotland where he's from and in Ireland as well, like at the time, I mean, there definitely was a real 
belief in fairies in Ireland, there still is. So that's not, I mean, there was a, a, a multi-million dollar road project that was rerouted to not bowl over a fairy tree here, yeah. like not too long mm-hmm. ago. I mean, there are, I've talked to people who talk about fairies. You don't walk into a ring of mushrooms here. So definitely at the time. And then, you know, in 18, 18- 95 um a guy murdered his wife because he said she was a changeling and it was like a huge in ireland and with bridget cleary and it was this huge story and there were fairy doctors then and there's a way in which um you know religion really sort of tied itself into uh and tr- traditional maybe is the right or wrong word fairy beliefs um and understanding of this other world and these other beings and so some of what he's doing with you know the mulling over the fairies and the flowers and are they in the flowers or what's going on with that i mean those would be serious things that people were thinking about at the time um and like i said even now in ireland still might be considering some of these things so that's why i think it's not just um, a fairy tale in that sense. Um, it's also like him trying to grapple with some of the ideas that were actually in the air at the time. Yeah. So you had mentioned this genre of the Kunstmarchen, is that correct? Right. And you mentioned yeah. that, you know, there's, so there's not really any character development. But is that a way for the reader to put themselves in the position of the protagonist and then to develop the kind of knowledge that this person is journeying through because anecdotes literally means without a road right so he's he's basically a blank slate as his character at the beginning right mm-hmm. and he's you know we do learn that he has a backstory but he's he's meant to be sort of a blank slate right so i'm wondering if that's you know a deliberate right yeah question. like you're saying are we meant to project ourselves yeah. into that i mean yeah in some ways i i think like one of the most extraordinary things about this novel and we could talk about this in reference to games as well, but it's like, it really, even though there are like battles and there's some running around, it really is like an exploration novel. It really is someone sort of looking upon a different kind of world and seeing all the contours of it, the details, the trees, the beans, how they live. And it's not, I don't want to say exactly world building. Like he's not trying to give a history of how everything came to be. Um, although there are a few sort of minor histories of uh, the ash and the alder, but it is. Um, but so I think in that sense, the character is getting what the author is trying to give to us, which is like, look at this imaginative world, like look upon it and like explore it as I'm exploring it. And so I think that that's, you know, yeah, I think there's some of that happening there. I don't think we're necessarily, we're not supposed to relate to the character. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think we're supposed to be like, wow, I too, you know, <laughs> I, I too have uncovered a woman made out of stone. And you <laughs> beautiful ideal of what I've always wanted. You know, it's not going to be yeah, like so that. relatable. Yeah. Rather than world building, I feel like this story is much more focused on mood building. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. he does such a great job of weaving in the melancholy uh, weaving in the um, the finding beauty in the everyday, you know, I just simple lines really just uh, leaped off of the page for me. There's um, just here's the beginning of one sentence. When he walked in the streets, he always felt as if reading a tale. 
And that just reminded me of living in New York for 16 mm. years. And there were times I would just be walking through the streets of New York with my headphones on, and I would just feel like I was in a movie. And it would just feel so magical mm-hmm. and special. Or the way in which in the beginning of the novel, when he first meets the fairy and the fairy tells him that she's that he's going to be able to go to fairyland, he immediately starts thinking about his dead mom. And then he has, and then and then his room starts to fill with water. Why did George McDonald choose to tell us that he started thinking about his dead mom? Other than like it's 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 weaving the melancholy into what's happening. And in general, I feel like my experience of reading this book was very much peaks and valleys. Like there are times that I was absolutely captivated and was really just loving the insight and the beauty of what I was reading. And other times I was just super bored. And, but also that kind of feels like also the experience of just like taking like a long walk through the forest. You know, there are going to be times where you're going to be captivated by something beautiful. And then there's times where you're just like, eh, I've been walking for a while. Should I turn around? (laughs) Right. But but there's always (laughs) that little extra drag of like, but what if there's something really interesting around the corner and I just turned back too soon? (laughs) <laughs> yeah so, totally didn't you guys like i felt like um like <laughs> another book that reminds me of this in a very weird way is um annihilation by jeff vandermeer and um the reason why is because that again is a book yes there's plot points in it but it has so many sort of mm, scenes that are set by seeing something fantastic and then seeing the next fantastic thing. And don't you feel like you're playing mist a little bit? Like you're just kind of wandering around some like world and you're like, wait, what's that weird thing? What's that weird thing? And like you said, mist could get quite boring. You know, Um, it could get, uh, you could be like, "Uh, all right, another weird thing. Yeah. Or, (laughs) you know, and so I I feel like that sort of set scene aspect of it, um, you know, everything was a a sort of, what do you want to call them? Like a tableau or something like that. Like everything had this quality of um, here's the next strange thing that's been set up for you to win. I mean, I think he very much succeeds in sort of that dream logic. Um, It's usually when we wake up that we create the narrative of the dream. But when we're in the dreams, it's like, oh, this scene happened, this scene happened. Then we wake up and like, oh, and then we try to make a story out of that dream that we had. Right. But really, it was just a bunch of images or or moods when we had our dreams. Mm -hmm. And I think he's very successful at that in a way that I also think I also think he addresses both of what you guys are saying directly in the text like the very first sentence of the story speaking to what Hoy is saying is I awoke one morning with the usual perplexity of mind which accompanies the return to consciousness which is exactly Mm -hmm. what you're talking about Hoy Mm -hmm. and Connor he, he says on page 23 of my version like a child who being in a chronic condition of wonder is surprised at nothing it's this idea of like, mm-hmm. I'm, this book is living in that perpetual state of wonder where everything that's new is so surprising and so fantastic. But also because of that, we're not really surprised or shocked by it because everything is strange. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, the, you know, so when we get to the end, wait, can I talk about the end or should I just leave? Okay, okay, yeah. Um, you know, so at the end, he dies and he comes back to life, which I love the, um, also, the gameplay aspect of that, where it's like, oh, my character died. Well, I don't know. Did he? Like, <laughs> figure it out. But, um, you know, it's uh, with this, a pang and a terrible shudder went through me. A writhing as of death convulsed me, and I became once again conscious of a more limited, even a bodily and earthly life. Um, so he's 
he's actually sort of <laughs> in that way, when he comes back into his own body, just like he is waking up in the passage that you're talking about, Jeff, um, it's like, he's sort of even there talking about the sensuousness of like the everyday. It's unpleasant to him in a way after having been away for what he thinks is so long in this much more kind of beautiful, um, Kuropi land, but it's, you know, I think it, I think it still speaks to the fact that the everyday has its own extraordinary contours of the senses as well. Yeah. Yeah. Connor, I'm really curious what your thoughts are about the scene with the maiden and the globe. (laughs) I don't really have that. No. Because I have lots of thoughts and I'm curious if you have any. Well, why don't you start? Because I, I have, do you want to talk about that? I wanted to talk about the maid the ma- the maid of the the maid of the alder. How about we do both? Yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll start with the with the lady with the globe, and then we can transition over yeah. to the alder. Yeah. So um, we've got this character who she is a she's described as a little maiden who is happy and dancing. I'm sorry, she is singing and dancing, happy as a child. Uh, says that she mm-hmm. carried a small globe, and at some point he comes up and he wants to touch her small globe. And she says, you must not touch it, or if you do, it must be very gently. And he keeps touching it. And every time there's like this tiny harmony that comes out of the globe. And he keeps touching it. And then she basically tells him to stop. And he says, uh, my desire to know about the globe grew irresistible. I put both my hands on it and laid hold of it. It began to sound as before till it grew a low tempest of harmony and the globe trembled and quivered and throbbed between my hands. I held it in spite of her attempts to take it from me. Yes, I shame to say in spite of her prayers and at last her tears till at last it burst in our hands and a black vapor broke upwards from it and enveloped the maiden. She held fast the fragments, which I abandoned, and fled from me into the forest in the direction whence she had come, wailing like a child and crying, you have broken my globe. It really seems like this is George MacDonald exploring sexual assault in a really interesting Mm. way, potentially. And I think there are more generous and less generous ways of looking at that particular passage. Um, looking at the um, breaking of the globe and the black vapor that escapes from it and um, and how it has changed her. I think a less generous perspective could be some purity culture stuff going on. She has been ruined by having her 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 globe shattered. I think a more pers- a more generous perspective could be this is somebody who is now grappling with the trauma that she just experienced and has been changed by that trauma. Um, and then also later on in the book, oh, and, and he talks a lot about how horrible he feels about this thing that happened. Um, he is somebody who was um, in the pursuit of beauty and ended up doing this thing that he feels a great shame about. And later in the story, he runs into her again, and he feels so bad for what happened, and he's apologizing to her. And she's saying, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Um, I learned a lot from what happened, and now I have my own voice, and now I can sing. And I think a less generous perspective is that this is maybe some rape apologism. And I think a more generous perspective is that people are are changed by their trauma and are made stronger because of it sometimes and are able to learn and grow and forgive people who've harmed them in the past. I just I think it's just a fascinating thing to include in this story. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, I like that you're doing the more generous, less generous thing, because I mean, just to tie that into the little bit that I wanted to talk about, which is where he thinks that he's found again, his sort of beautiful stone woman. But in fact, he's found this like quite grotesque creature that's like wants to harm him that there is this constant, like, is this, is this beauty or is this the shadow yeah. of beauty? Is this the thing that I'm looking for or is this, and there, you know, in the moment, as you mentioned before, when you held the photo or the illustration up, there's a moment where he's encountering his own shadow. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, the doppelganger, the double, whatever you want to call it is something that runs throughout this. And so I think, yeah, when we're talking about the globe, I mean, I, I think that that would be how we read it now for sure. I doubt that you know, this, there were ideas of rape or sexual assault in the same way yeah. when he wrote this. And, you know, people, especially women, were probably just considered property of their mm -hmm. husbands at the time. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, I, I know how recently some of those laws were right. lifted in yes. <laughs> the U.S. and the yeah. U.K. Yes. So um, I think so there's probably all of that. But I think it's it it could just be like, you know, the pursuit of any sort of spiritual wisdom or the pursuit of your desire is bound to, you know, um, inflict some damage on you mm -hmm. or on others. Yeah. And, um, it's really how you decide to move with that damage that, yeah. you know, that yeah. matters. Uh, what's the, someone said, you know, I don't know. I think maybe it was Rudolf Steiner. But he said, you know, we must not be so naive as to think that spiritual development will not bring great suffering. Yeah. And I think that that's, probably the truth with a lot of development, but especially the kinds of development that are being explored in this right. book, which is development with engagement with these weird right. beings, you know, I think, <laughs> spiritual yeah. I think you're absolutely on that. And I think even on a much more sort of basic, if you were sort of reading this in a very literal fantasy, uh, fairy tale kind of way, it's just thinking about uh, Anodos specifically called out as like the big brother in the family. He's the oldest brother. You know, when he meets the other brothers, you know, when he fights the giant, he just becomes one of three, but he's the oldest brother. And it's that thing mm -hmm. of just like, you're the oldest, but you're still a child. And like, I'm an older brother. So I remember like, you know, just like fighting over a toy with my sister and like, oh, the toy broke. And now we both feel bad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it operates on that level too, of like uh, something innocent, but we did this bad thing. But we had no conception of, the neither one of us had any conception of the consequences of this thing that could happen. So it, it, I think it can operate on all the levels we're talking about, which I think it makes it successful. And I think you're yeah. right that they weren't necessarily talking about it in literal ways, uh, Connor, uh, about things like sexual assault, but it still has meaning in that modern way and can be read in that modern way, even if it was not intended at the time when it was written, that it can, it can talk yeah. about it. And there's so much emotional complexity in this story, which I really appreciate. And even when he comes back to the present, there's this, there's another part I highlighted here where he's asking himself, could I translate the experience of my travels there into common life? Or must I live it all over again and learn it all over again? Those questions I cannot answer yet, but I fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and all this is also illustrated like really early on with the the death of the primrose right uh the and the way that even the fairies are interacting with each other without having any sort of idea that it could hurt you know and i think this is something with a lot of fairy tales or 
I don't know, you see a lot of these beans in these kinds of stories. I, not so much like a fantasy epic that we might read now, but where you see these characters that are kind of just sort of, yeah, I guess it's kind of like a cartoon actually, where they can injure each other and think that there's no consequence really. Like there's not really a sense that there's going to be development, even in even in the ogre being, even in the um, even in the maid that I mentioned, it's kind of just like, well, this is just who we are. We just do these things, and yeah, things will bounce back or not. In the same way that someone could fall off a cliff in a cartoon and then just show up again. Whereas I think what you're talking about, um, well, what you guys are talking about is that there is a kind of, um, as a reader, we're searching for the signs that development is happening, that actions do have positive and negative consequences that, um, you know, even just going into this fantasy world and coming out and thinking I was gone for this long time, but no, actually I was gone for this short time um, because... I'm totally changed by this experience because even though it was just a short period of time, I thought it was that long. So I must be completely and profoundly transformed by that short time there. So I think as readers, we look for that. And I think it, I think he wrote it that way, but I don't know that it's in the world of these, you know, little being little and big beings interacting with each other, which are much more like Toontown, you know? I think, I mean, I think it is, and 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 it's because it goes in stages. Again, initially, it's much more um, sort of uh, animation type fairies, right? But then, as it well, although we have the ash tree, but then as we get farther on, it becomes sort of more darker, a little bit more overtly allegorical uh, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess maybe one thing to talk about, since we're sort of um, and we're still talking about the book, but in sort of terms of construction. So you're, you're a novelist and, and, you know, if you were given this scenario or this at least bare outline, this chat GPT outline, right? Like how would you have gone about constructing this world? You know, this, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. I mean, I think in some ways this is less like a novel, more like nature writing, um, nature writing about a place that doesn't exist. Um, that it's more what it feels like to me. It's this kind of lush place, um, in the same way that, and, and the events that take place, um, the battles, even the sort of final one where he dies clutching, what is he's like clutching the throat of this monster. And he's like, my dream was that they would find me dead with my hands still wrapped around his throat or something <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, even those are just kind of, they're almost sort of uh, natural events in this natural imaginary landscape. Yeah, It reminds me of just another book to bring up, this book of poetry by Stephen Sexton called um, If All the World... Oh, oh, gosh. I need to know the name of this book because it's a beautiful book of poetry about um, Super Mario Brothers. And it's about Mario World. It's like, a, like almost a natural... nature writing book about mario oh cool and the world and the pixelated clouds and the trees and stuff like that it's really it's really a great book of poetry oh that sounds amazing that's oh gosh yeah can we just like check on what that is actually (laughs) called for the readers because um all the yeah if if all the yes that's what it's called if all the world and love were young amazing and um (laughs) and every every poem is named after a different level 
uh, in the game. That's really cool. Um, yeah, it's so cool. But so that's that's in construction in my mind is this is less about creating you know rising and falling action, although to some extent that does happen, and then literally falling action at the end. But it's it's more about um, creating a kind of landscape. And I think that's really beautiful. It's not an option that many writers take when they're writing fiction. Yeah. Um, and I wish more would, but it's hard. To, it's just really hard to do that as well. And part of the point of this podcast is that it's about learning how to find inspiration for your gaming in, in the literature. And I think this book is a fantastic resource for that. I think because we're going from mm. uh, from scene to scene so often, each chapter could be its own little adventure or set piece. There's so much that you could take from this and put into your gaming. So, Connor, I want to ask you if we could go back in time and have little Connor, who's fantasizing about running his D&D adventures, if he would have read this story, what do you think little Connor would want to have taken from this and put into this like this like uh, D&D campaign that he was crafting in his mind? Oh, like that all the plants have their issues as well, right? Because like in my idea of a D&D campaign, it's like as a kid, it's like, oh, there's going to be a monster that comes out of the woods. But the woods are the monster, man. Like, <laughs> that, 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 you know, it's like Evil Dead or something. Like the trees um, are dangerous, but, you know, the grasses and the flowers and all those, you know, why not have – the landscape be completely populated by things that you can encounter rather than something just emerging from the woods. You could have something that was, you know, the whole place was alive, you know, as people are walking through it. Yeah. And I love the the little ways in which he makes the forest feel so fairy and so foreign, like how as mm. he's walking through the woods, the animals, they're not running away or hiding. They're just looking at him like, what are you doing here? Right, right. A rabbit that puts its paw on his foot is like <laughs> this really sweet <laughs> moment. You're like, oh, it's like someone's uh, Instagrammable moment yeah. with a rabbit and then it runs away. Yeah. yeah. Hoy, what do you what, what do you want to steal and put in your game? I mean, this so, so much. I mean, talking about like where everything is literally alive um, in there. And we talked about this in the Patreon book club. I think that creates that line of continuity to Dunsany and to this case to Clark Ashton Smith, right? You know, the his weird mm-hmm. live plants and in Yovambis or whatever, you know, the the weird fantastical worlds mm-hmm. that Clark Ashton Smith talks has. Um, yeah. So the the weird forms of life, and you know, the fact that the is it the, I can't remember if it's the alder or the ash tree ogre is, but whichever one of those is, is genuinely scary, I mean, especially when it gets between him and the moon, right? Um, Yes, the yeah, ash tree. tree. Um, and then at the more mundane level, I, I I really did love that fight scene with the giants. It really, really worked as a sword and sorcery fight scene. It was as good as any fight scene in, you know, sort of pre-Howard, you know. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. you can visualize it and, you know, you see, oh, well, he's the other character stronger, but he's got a high deck, so he still has a decent armor class, you know, right? <laughs> and he's fighting these giants. Um, so... Those all work for me. Um, so the set piece ofness, set pieceness of it kind of works for sort of like um, you know we have a game and we have a pickup group. We're not trying to be completely realistic, but oh, we're going to meet every Friday. But I'm not going to spend a- the entire week thinking about the internal logic of this world. I just want to get there and give you a great experience, and and you give me the feedback of how that experience works as you know between that contract between the game master and the players, um, rather than like obsessing about stuff like you know challenge ratings is this the right monster the right hit points like no this is just going to be a great scene and we're going to play it out and it's going to 
work organically. And then from that, we can think about what the next thing might be. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I think it, it is very, the more I think about it, it's like, cause I, when I finished reading it this morning, I was like, eh, I, I really liked this, reading this book, but I wouldn't read it for pleasure. But now the more I think about it, the more I like this book, you know? Yeah. And I think specifically, I think there are two camps of gamers that I think this book could be really interesting for. One is for the folks who really want to do fairy tale gaming. So f- folks who are setting their games in Dolmenwood, who are using the, um, the Daniel J. Bishop Creeping Beauties of the Woods mm-hmm. settings for DCC RPG. For those people, I think you would get a lot from this. But also, I think for the Dying Earth camp, because one thing I'm really picking up on here is this like slow, gradual pr- procession. And I um, thankfully, one, somebody in our patron book club did a great job of talking about how this is the bridge between kind of the Arthurian romances and the works of Lord Dunsany. And I think going from this to Lord Dunsany to Clark Ashton Smith to Jack Vance's Dying Earth is a very kind of straight uh, progression Mm -hmm. of theme and of mood. And if you're doing a game that's in like, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics Dying Earth setting, or if you're using the Vaults of Varn collection or anything kind of in a kind of Dying Earth fantasy setting, there's so many just like strange little like cottages and villages and characters and strange little creatures Mm -hmm. you're running into. And there's just a just a, a fun little interesting thing around every corner. And this book is just full of things that you can steal for those kinds of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you guys said both those things because I was thinking, you know, when I read this, um, I I wonder what games look like when they're not, what campaigns or whatever look like when it's not about leading up to the big battle or even the mini bosses or whatever, you know, that actually, I mean, I don't want everybody to turn their game into like a version of Animal Crossing or something like <laughs> yeah. that, but like how, how, how could it be populated by smaller instances? Mm-hmm. And I think Peter said it on the episode that he did with you um, about the, what was it, Michael Moorcock, mm. I think you guys talked about, but it was like, you know, where he's like, I, w- I wish games could have more of a puzzle solving element than the mm. battle element. And I think also that gives us something to our imaginations when we're being asked to, and and I don't mean to uh, diss on the, the battle scenes, which I also liked that you guys <laughs> bring it up, but like, I think, you know, it gives something to our imaginations to be like, well, what is this? If what is this game if it's not a contest of power, Um, you know, and when we when we get into those kinds of uh, encounters, it just makes us think in a completely different way about how to create Mm -hmm. something. Yeah, I think um, whether it's it's, you know, realizing that you have a narrative at the time. What I like about this book, again, because it's not sort of, again, the plot description is just like the the least of it. Right. Is that. Yeah. is um, whether you call it storytelling, it's it's making meaning. But in this case, you said have to have to make meaning both at the time, but the whole picture doesn't emerge until after facts. Right. And so you have to make meaning after you've read it also, like we're, we're doing right now. <laughs> right. Um, I suppose that's yeah. true of all literature, mm-hmm. but this particular story lends itself to that because it's not defined by a traditional narrative. Right. And, and, you know, a rising plot, you know, rising tension, you know, release. It it doesn't really work in that way. Although individual portions of the book do work that way. Um, I also like the meta fiction Mm. level of when he's in the the palace and he's reading the books and then, you know, there's the story of Cosmo and Bohemia and stuff like that. So there's like three layers deep, right. Or four, you know, and they could keep on drilling down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I mean, something that I really love about this book 
is it's um, every chapter starts with some, you know, quotes from other authors. And a lot of them are going to be ones that people probably haven't heard of before. Um, and these are a lot of times they're sort of mystic theologian figures like Novalis. Um, there's Goethe quote, there's a few others, but they're all kind of just like gold as well. It can send you down in like a lot of directions. And that was something that I really appreciated about it. And I guess I looked up, you know, I looked uh, him up a bit and apparently his teacher was like the first full-time English professor that had ever existed. (laughs) And so like, I think, you know, part of the impetus here is to share, you know, the love of other Mm -hmm. writing with people, not just the writing that he's doing himself. And so I really like that as well as little sort of um, Mm -hmm. Easter eggs. Do you think, uh, um, because we're talking about people like Goethe and other who are sort of mystical, do you think this is form some sort of um, mystical, I mean, it's obviously there in the narrative, but also at a sort of more meta level that this book uh, worked as some sort of mystical initiation or mystical education in some way as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like the, the reason why people probably even still know about this book at all is because C.S. Lewis um, said it baptized his imagination and he wrote a he wrote a book about George MacDonald. Well, it's mostly George MacDonald quotes, but he wrote like a, an intro to it. And that book's still, you know, readily in print. And I think, you know, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, that group of people were all, the Inklings were all very um, invested in uh, different forms of theology. And it was particularly um, intersected with forms of Christian mm-hmm. occultism and Christian occultism does have uh, factor in the, the, you know, the understanding that these elemental beings, these fairy beings, these spirit being, beings are real. And so I think definitely it filtered into that. And if it filtered into that, then it's filtered completely into popular culture mm-hmm. as well. So there's this sort of, yes, occult educational impulse that's sort of followed its way through and burst into right, right. The popular without being obviously as christian apologetics as the narnia books by by lewis were later on right 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 yeah, right. Okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. well um <laughs> i think we're sort of uh that's a really good summation but any other additional thoughts before we sort of uh, sort of start edging out of the library and <laughs> just one just one little tiny bit that i wanted to know um, if you guys picked up on it, but where um, he's he's going into the woods and he comes across a cabin. This is really early on, and uh, the woman does she have a name? The first woman in the first. Well, she's the, she's the ogre that she that they were that they that he had been warned about. The the very first. Oh, that's before the shadow yeah. cottage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like she said something like um, <laughs> uh, something like. You are, you have a bit of fairy in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember oh, this? Yeah, yeah. And um, she's like, you know, I have, I'm, I'm part fairy. I have fairy blood, and that's how I'm here. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have gotten this far if you didn't have fairy blood too. Yeah. But uh, it's been educated out of you because of your education. You actually can't get in touch with it. Mm. And I love that. I mean, I love that. There's this real academic, you know, <laughs> a real academic, a writer, theologian. You, you know, all this. And he's like, but the education will actually remove knowledge from you and that there's a kind of knowing that you can only reclaim by forgetting that and remembering who you really are. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the how like 
what once you have been involved in the making of movies then the the movie magic is lessened you know i i th- i think it's kind of speaking to that yeah. kind of general experience but definitely that sort of loss of innocence mm-hmm. and then also when we're talking about things like i guess zen right like your thinking is getting in your way of your your being and your enlightenment right and so there's that yeah. level where it operates at well wow, that's uh really um some great thoughts on that um so uh we're wrapping up uh connor what are you working on that you would like people to know about um okay so just so people know, I've been required to have some forethought on this because um, <laughs> the, the t- time between recording and when it comes out, um, you guys are so much more on it than I am, by the way. Like, I'll sometimes be like, this episode comes out tomorrow. <laughs> um, I, I, So I don't know what I'm working on in the future, which is now, um, when I'm saying <laughs> this in the past. Um, uh, I know that the Hawk Mountain paperback comes out um, in the summer of 2023. And so um, I'll be expecting to do uh, events around that. So, um, you know, that still will be a few months off from the date of the airing of this episode, but just, you know, come to them. Th- that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm working on another book right now, but that's not, okay. you know. And your, your podcast is on Spotify and YouTube, right? That's the, the best book. Against everyone with Connor Reed is on everything. It's not um it's okay. not on YouTube anymore. Um the early episodes are, but the but everything every is other on podcast every other okay. so, podcast Terrific. And any other um ventures, speaking tours, mostly yeah. around the book, right? That would be what's what's happening soon. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib, C O N N E R H A B I B. Um obviously that's I, that means a lot to me. It's the only thing that, you know, funds the podcast and what I do. So All right. great. Check out the podcast, yeah. listen, donate. If you like what you're hearing, uh, same as for us, Jeff, how about the, uh, we'll do a little reverse. We'll talk about our Patreon and then we'll do our regular contact. So how about our Patreon, Jeff? Uh, our patrons get to join us for our patron book club recordings. Today we are joined by Joseph Hoopman, Rick Byrne, Damo Saklas and Adam Styers. Thank you all for joining We have um, some new patrons as well. Thank you to Terrence LeBeau, Josh Legeman, Adrian Carpio, and Andy Carter for joining the Patreon. We appreciate your support. We're also going to reach into the bag and pick out a few names. Thank you to Noah Green, Eric Johnson, Robert Phillips, Stephen Fritter, Eric Byritz, Ego Orb, Robert Poynton, Matt Hildebrand, Jeremy Harper, and Jason White. We appreciate your support. Also, um... In addition to our patrons joining us for the book clubs, after this episode drops, we are moving from a bi-weekly schedule to a once-every-four-week schedule. So we're going to be slowing down the pace with which we're releasing episodes, but our patrons are still going to get to hang out with us just as often because now we're doing movie clubs in between. So uh, two weeks after today, today meaning the day we're recording this, it will already have been in the past by the time this comes out, we will be meeting up with our patrons and discussing The Blade Master by Joe D'Amato. And we'll be having a patron poll for um, uh, Ray Harryhausen movies. Uh, Hoy, you can let folks know what titles were voted on i guess that's the one downside to talking about this in right. this particular way with how we right? release yeah. our episodes but <laughs> yeah it'll yeah. catch up uh well the theme will be last of the titans so selections from the works of ray harryhausen so uh first film will be mighty joe young or you could vote on seventh voyage of sinbad the valley of guanji or clash of the titans so one of those ray harryhausen movies and we'll be discussing that i guess in april right so 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And if you have any other feedback for us, you can find us at appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, if Twitter is still around and hasn't burned down yet, you can do it at appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice and do the same for Connor. It really helps people find our shows. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Connor, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thanks, Connor. All right. Thanks. Yeah. See you in the stacks, everybody. Read on. The library is closed.